All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for making this morning a morning to remember, not because by man's standards it is special, but rather because every day lived by faith in your grace and love is unique. Making such days special to you personally. We thank you, Father, for times like this, times to reflect and apply your precious word to our lives like Isav, so we can see it all as truth. We pray, Father, that our hearts be open and moved by your love for us. For as your word states even, we love because you first loved us. We pray also for those unable to be here this morning, though they earnestly desire to fellowship with us. We just ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this is uh, an exciting time in the ministry. Uh, If you were here on Thursday, um, you know where the Spirit is taking us. On Thursday, the Spirit had me share a little more of my own heart with you on this idea of seven years and seven months. And from my perspective, that's how long it took Him to deliver all of you unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, the Gospels primarily uh, as an overview in why they might be. There's only there's four in the, the Bible, the Gospels of, right? And why some people have difficulties with these phenomenal, wonderful books. And so we're on this precipice, if you would. We've made it to the, the highest mountain, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, got everything straight. And now we're just sort of wondering what He's going to do with us. But seven years and seven months, this ministry uh, has been around. And so I gave you a little numerology on the number seven from Bullinger. Seven is the great number of spiritual perfection, a number which therefore occupies so large a place in the works and especially in the Word of God as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So seven's a special number in Scripture. And it just so happens that this ministry in all its forms and all its sort of, and its maturation process, regardless of names, we've had three now, um, has been seven years and seven months. So again, just looking back from a shepherd's perspective, regarding our beloved deliverance, EBC, which is Yusabaya Bible Church, FICM, Freedom in Christ Ministries, and NCC, North Christian Church, combined to complete a seven-year and seven-month journey. That's how long it took to deliver this congregation unto the completed gospel message. So I was just reflecting on that, and I'm reviewing, so I'm going to go quickly. You know, just stepping back and taking a deep breath when you realize something like this has happened in uh, the midst of your own administration as a shepherd, uh, in the midst of so many faithful sheep such as yourselves, you've got to take a, a, a deep breath and just see what's happened, what's behind us, and then that gives us context for what's to come. 
we're not, or we're at one of those uh, moments in time after a really long, hard-fought battle. Um, when it's all over, the warrior doesn't always know how to live off the battlefield. There's just been so many fights, folks. So many scars, so many bruises, uh, so many ups and downs, so many even emotional highs and lows. Uh, it's just been a battle. I mean, come on. It's just been a hard-fought battle. And when you're geared up like that for seven years and seven months, sometimes it's hard to gear down. I mean, that's what you're in this mode for so long. It's hard to let go. So as I've taught many times in the past, the best soldiers are the most humble ones, the most obedient ones. And like many of you, they are the ones who simply show up for roll call every morning, seeking their marching orders faithfully presenting themselves as instruments of righteousness, a la Romans 6. Jesus said this, Luke 11, 9-10, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Signed, Jesus. This beloved congregation, I believe, has sought truth. That I believe. I know it hasn't been easy, and I know you and me and everyone else that's been through these doors has, you know, sort of kicked against the net at times. But I believe overall we have sought the truth. And I believe also that this congregation has found it in the only place trustworthy to reveal it the Word of God. On Thursday, we read the whole of Philippians 2. So I want to grab a highlight reel here this morning. Go to Philippians 2, verse 1. We'll just regain a little context from Thursday evening's message, a very sort of transitional type message before we catapult into the, quote, difficult passages beginning with the Gospels. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, that is, any shepherd's uh, desire, anyone worth his salt anyways, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Why? Those are the things that destroy the aforementioned things. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Just think about, think about my announcements this morning. Think about that ministry overseas. Well, how does that compare to verse 3 in your life? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, that's Scripture, my friends, and I hope you're still seeking honestly, and I hope you don't shut down. As that passage progresses, Jesus' humility is described as the 
divine standard, you know, uh, you know, Philippians 2, 7 and 8, his humility is really the divine standard. And for the sake of perspective, being perfect, it also keeps our estimations of our own humility, regarding our own humility in check, understanding that he was God and he became man. None of us have that problem. None of us have that problem. But we know what Scripture says to regard each other as more important than ourselves. So we have to understand what true, pure humility looks like. If we ever think we're something, all we need to do is remember Jesus and His humility. As Paul also wrote to the Corinthians up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 10:12. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I see humility in your faces these days, at least more than I've seen in the past, and it's a beautiful thing. These things take time. Let's just call a spade a spade. But I do see more humility in this congregation than I've ever seen in the past. Uh, And I see the fruit of that humility. I see what's going on uh, in your hearts as well. It's not a perfect humility, so, you know, don't get all puffed up. Oh, I I was thinking the same thing. I looked in the mirror today and all I saw was humility. I almost ordered a shirt with an H on it. You know, I was just moved by a necklace with an H or earrings, you know, so I could up it, so I could make it $300 I'm wearing instead of $200. Oh, 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 that's far enough, mister. <laughs> Don't ruin it by getting puffed up. Yeah, you're more humble, but how do you compare to Jesus? Nonetheless, may I submit Paul's sentiments to you as my own once again. Go to Philippians 4.1. Philippians 4.1. It's nice, I can tell you from my perspective, it's nice to be able to say, uh, you know, or tip my cap to you. It just seems like there's so much hard work I've had to do with you. It's nice to be able to say, hey, you know what? Let's get our perspective back here. Yes, we're all still screwy. We all mess up. We're all still arrogant in so many ways. But it's true. He did. He has sanctified us. You know, we were here and now we're here. And I see that. And I want you to know what Paul said in Philippians to the Philippians in Philippians 4.1. I certainly understand, and this is how I look at you. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That's a shepherd's heart on display. Uh, Here's mine, a little less elegant, but nonetheless uh, in the same vein of shepherd thinking up here on the board. A shepherd's adoration, I love you, all of you. I have fought hard for you by grace in humility and I have watched you delivered unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, nothing is sweeter for a shepherd like me. I mean, I could die tomorrow and say, hey, you know what? We got to go to the mountaintop. We got to do 117 hours of good work so that we could get the gospel just nailed tight in our own souls so that we could be reinvigorated and understand our truest purpose here in time after salvation. It's been wonderful. With that said, our work is certainly not complete. In fact, in many ways, it's just begun. 
in many ways, it's just begun. As we leave the Gospel proper series behind, I would say this as well. May we never depart from the supreme intimacy of the Gospel. Uh, it doesn't get any more intimate than the Gospel. The one who is saved, John 3.16, the one who is saved is given what? Eternal life. Well, who is eternal life? God's eternal life. Does it get any more intimate than that? No. So let us not lose or depart from the supreme intimacy of the gospel. We read the whole of John 15 to help us out with that magnificent words from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's grab a highlight of that now. Go to John 15.5. Just a highlight reel from that. John 15.5. Again, this is the passage of the vine and the branches. He says, you can do nothing outside of this intimate relationship with me. I mean, a branch gets its, think about it, its branch gets its sustenance from the vine. And that's the analogy. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Go to verse 8. Verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. Verse 10, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. And then 13, probably the more famous verse of all, is greater love is known than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Talking about intimacy up here in the board, may we never depart from the supreme intimacy of the gospel. And the person who spoke those words, of course, was Jesus Christ, who understood true intimacy. And he spoke of it. And that's what we learn from Scripture in John 15, amongst many other places. Through an intimacy unique to believers, we know God, and more importantly, God knows us. Go to 1 Corinthians 8.1. Again, I'm going quickly. These are all points of review. Through an intimacy unique to believers, we know God, and more importantly, God knows us. Now, there's a context, obviously, to that knowing Him, uh, him knowing us. Obviously, He knows everyone. He's created everyone, believers and unbelievers, but there's a, there's a unique thing here. 1 Corinthians 8.1 now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, wise in his own estimation, in other words, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Up here on the board known by him in context in 1 Corinthians 8.3, refers to a special favor or approval even of God. It's reminiscent, reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 7.22a and 23a. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, proclaiming some kind of an intimacy with Jesus, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Not that he didn't know who they were, this is the same idea. He never knew them. 
but again in verse 3 that you're in, but if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. It's the same idea of being known by God. Again, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, let's read it quickly. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. And please remember the principle on the board regarding what it means to be known by God in this context. If God knows you this way, you have a holy intimacy with Him. And there's no fleshly emotion that could ever compare. Ever compare. Even sex. Even sex. Up here on the board. That's a lie. Holy intimacy. God is love. There's nothing more intimate and eternal than God's love. We are able to experience His love supernaturally. 1 John 4, 7-11 through 11. As the Spirit highlighted on Thursday, the world tells us lies such as, you know, sex is the ultimate expression of love and intimacy. Let me tell you why that's a lie. If that were true, then why doesn't God have sex? If that were true, why doesn't God have sex then? You know why? It's because His perfect love isn't stymied by physical activities. His love is eternal. And not to be crass, but sex is only temporary. There's no comparison to eternally wrought intimacy. I suppose maybe for unbelievers, sex is arguably among the most intimate pleasures, but we are not unbelievers, I pray. So for the sake of added perspective, we got this on Thursday as well. In terms of holy intimacy, Jesus never had sex. Paul, as far as we know, after his conversion, never had sex. Neither were deprived of the greatest love and intimacy, though. In fact, one might argue that they were spared the, quote, distraction of having sex. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians uh, 7, where Paul talks about that. He's like, hey, some of you just remain like me. It's going to be a lot easier. But if you're problematic in that area, just don't break Jesus' law on the topic of sex outside of marriage. Not that the temptation wasn't present. Now, I want you to get back, or I want to get back to the title of this morning's message now. And that's why I went quickly. The difficult, quote-unquote, passages. That's where the Spirit's got us. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground over the last year. And there were quite a few passages that I had to purposely, for the sake of continuity and meeting the objectives of the day, had to sort of glaze quickly over. I would give you what, you know... Uh, the interpretation was, but I, we didn't do a whole lot of digging uh, and such. And so there were just some passages that have come up uh, over the years even that many of you might consider, quote, difficult. And so this is going to be a wonderful journey um, for all of us. The difficult passages, starting with the Gospels, plural. The final point from our capstone lesson on Thursday was this again. Seven years and seven months, my beloved, you have been delivered up to the gospel. You know it now. You've seen the scripture. You understand it. Now go live it. Okay. Go live it. Hmm. 
That's a tremendous statement. Go live it, by the way. And it does not originate with me. That's just another way of stating what Paul wrote in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Go there. Romans 1, 16. You see, all the things we've talked about, once you get things straight in your own soul, starting with the gospel, all these passages begin to pop, and they're very simple to understand. They're not difficult at all to understand. And it's no wonder that after that series that the Spirit says, okay, the difficult passage, we need to start with the Gospels. Why would anybody have a problem with anything Jesus ever said? But people do. They take it so far they want to not even think about what Jesus said. Some people are so hyper-categorized in their doctrines, they literally say, "Jesus, don't even listen to anything Jesus said, only listen to Paul. We're going to talk about that. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Go live it, in other words. Faith in what again? How about this? The word of Christ For that's what Romans 10.17 teaches us, that faith is from hearing what? The Word of Christ. Now, with that on the table right now, and fresh in your hearts, let me ask you one simple question. And this will be the impetus for the very first installment of our messages regarding the difficult passages of the Gospels. Here's the question. Regarding the Word of Christ. Now, I gave you Romans 10, 17 as a reference for a reason. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? The Word of Christ. Okay, so speaking of the Word of Christ. Can you imagine embarking on a quest for faith, a faith that comes from hearing the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17, without first consulting the actual words of Christ Himself? Can you imagine doing that very thing? Again, can you imagine embarking on a quest for faith, a faith that comes from hearing the word of Christ, that's Scripture, without first consulting the actual words of Christ Himself? I mean, the Gospel is named after Him, right? Unless you're so far off in your doctrines, and you think there's more than one Gospel, which we'll talk about that briefly, but I don't teach that. I'm never going to teach it. I've never taught it, even though there's some ambiguity in the midst of the Gospel. There's only one gospel. There's always been only one gospel. It's the gospel of, guess who? Jesus Christ. And it's been consistent since the dawn of mankind. So can you imagine, I mean, if if you're setting out to understand Scripture, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ, and then you somehow have cordoned off the very words of Christ. Where does that leave you? You're starting sort of with a hacked-off version of Scripture. But, in all fairness, surprisingly, and I can relate to this firsthand, having been raised as a child in a totally deceived local denomination that doesn't bother teaching verbal plenary Scripture, in other words, the whole word in context, and then having been steeped in another kind of religion for a few years, one with an unhealthy respect for the doctrines of men, 
having actually lived out a couple of awful lies, the Gospels, the Gospels, plural, to me, always seemed a bit ethereal, if you would, almost unapproachable in a sense, something I learned at an early age. And Satan loves it when a person believes a lie or lies that keep them from spending any real time with the words of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If you're going to spend any real time in Scripture, please spend it with the words of Jesus. I mean, it is His Gospel after all. Again, the point on the board. Can you imagine embarking on a quest for faith a faith that comes from hearing the Word of Christ without first consulting the actual words of Christ Himself. Now, I'm just sweeping over this. I'm not saying there's not a context. Who's been teaching you to read Scripture in context? I have. But let's not throw everything out here. Let's understand His heart on the matter. That's what's important here. So I know that many of you have been delivered from this folly over the past year or so, but... Here's the phenomenon that doesn't make any sense, and I'd rather present it, the Spirit's argument here practically. I'm going to show you practically what the Spirit's getting at on this topic of the difficult passages, the Gospels, plural. Do all of you believe in the verse that we began class with this morning? You're all like, well, I don't remember. <laughs> I know you don't remember. You're my sheep, remember? Uh, right? <laughs> Luke 11, 9 to 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Anybody have a problem with that? I don't think so. Do you know anybody that says they're a Christian that would have a problem with that? No, it's a lovely thing to, to read, right? Red letters, Jesus Christ, there's a whole lot of promises there. You mean if I knock, I'll find? If I seek, the door will be open? Yeah, isn't that awesome? Love it. Mm -hmm. Might even quote it from time to time. I'm not sure I've ever met anyone in any religion that didn't take the passage on the board to heart. In other words, it seems that no quote-unquote Christian ever has a problem with this verse. And that's very interesting. No one ever seems to have a problem with this verse. And that is Luke, which is one of the Gospels. And those are Jesus' words. Okay. You know, the word of Christ. Or how about this verse? Anyone have a problem with this one? Matthew 28, 19-20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Anybody have a problem with that one? Nope. Most Christians say, yeah, that's, you know, that's the Great Commission. You know, go out and evangelize people. Okay, that's cool. How about one more? If you, anyone uh, ever seem to have a problem with this one? How about John 5.24? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Anybody have a problem with that one? No, right? 
These are all scripture passages from the Gospels. Hmm. Jesus' words right on the board. Nobody seems to have a problem with those. They'll even quote them. Even people who supposedly hack off Jesus' words or his Gospels in favor of Paul's, they'll dip in every so often and say, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just like a nice little principle? Let's put that on a poster. So it's fair to say that most so-called Christians take no offense to this lovely, most edifying, or these lovely, most edifying principles that Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. Then why do some people struggle with his words otherwise? Up here on the board. Now do not get hung up in the weeds. I'm still very big picture here. Difficulty, quote unquote, with the Gospels. What's the problem? Why do people like some things that Jesus says, but not all? The only reason the Gospels, those books that contain Jesus' words, are, quote, difficult is because man has selective hearing. That's why. Well, I don't like when he said that. Well, so? You like when he said these other things, you quote them all the time. You like these things, right? You'll take those things, maybe even those things, out of context, but you don't like these things, and so you're completely disobedient to them, even so far as to say dismissive of them. This is what the average or many Christians will say. Arguably the greatest attack on the Gospels from within so-called Christianity has been from what we would call hyper-dispensationalism. In other words, the idea, listen, dispensation is nothing really wrong with it. It's a word that doesn't occur in the Word of God. Go figure. But there's nothing wrong with the concept of saying, well, obviously, I mean, we're not any longer under the law. Anybody over here sacrificing animals on an altar? Why not? Well, read Hebrews and you'll know why. So that's, there's nothing wrong with those things. But hyper-dispensationalism goes like a, with a butcher block. Chop, shh, chop, shh, chop, shh. And, th- and they can't agree, by the way. Some say there's four, some say there's two, some say there's seven, some say there's eight. I've heard as many as I want to say 16 distinctions, chopping up the Word of God. And then all the followers are like, I, I'm, lo- I'm losing sight of all that. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm losing sight of this. Back in April 2nd of 2013, I taught a message titled, Systematic Theology is Useful, but it has its place. On the 3rd, the following night, the Spirit had me drive certain points home that are worth reiterating here this morning. Why? Because as I taught you back then, certain facets of contemporarily accepted doctrine is based on one of the key doctrines associated with systematic theology, the doctrine of dispensationalism. I mean, there's books and books and books and books written on these things. Nobody agrees, by the way, which is not unheard of with the doctrines of men. But let me, this is, I'm going to refresh your memory, just a, a trip down memory lane. I even took you so far back to the advent of the printing press and how it related to systematic theology. The sharp rise in the, quote, science of theology, that's what systematic theology is, the science of theology, 
based on the sharing of ideas between notable theologians is directly related to the printing press. How do you think they shared ideas? Much more efficiently. Because things were in print now. This allowed theologians to build doctrines upon doctrines. Now it was no longer the Word of God and learning the Word. It was learning the Word and then the written doctrines of men. And then you get two or three of those together and someone gets wise and says, but if I put two and three of these together, I get a fourth one that sits on top. And then if I got four or five of them, then I can put another one on top. Before we know it, we're building up to God. Sounds like Babel almost, doesn't it? The doctrines of men. And these people over here have forgotten about the actual root cause of all of it, which is the Word of God. <laughs> and then so goes this folly. The issue was with leaving the Word behind, just like the Jews did with the Mishnah. Remember I taught you that? That was a few years ago. The oral law, and then it turned into the doctrines of men on the oral law and so forth. Again, memory lane on dispensationalism, just so you understand what Wikipedia has to say about it. As a system, dispensationalism is rooted in Scripture. Rooted doesn't mean accurate. It just means rooted. It means there's a lot of Scripture that's tangled in there and expounded in the writings of John Nelson Darby. Some call him the father of, di of contemporary dispensationalism. And he was born in 1800. Okay. So John Nelson Darby in the Plymouth Brethren movement. Please take note of that date. That's, you know, 1800. And he probably didn't really write his, the meat of his arguments for dispensationalism till closer to the middle or end of his day, which is probably somewhere around 1850. Okay, that's less than 200 years ago, right? My math is serving me correctly. Up here on the board. This type of Bible teaching has been, quote, progressing for centuries. Maybe that's aggressive even. Becoming particularly popular in the last 100 to 200 years of particular noteworthiness is the extensive work of Lewis Sperry Schaefer in his Systematic Theology. Now, if you've ever read, I own, I own the volumes, the eight-volume series. If you've ever read that, you might be better off reading Greek. Why would that be the case? No, let's face it. Paul said, I didn't come to you with superiority of wisdom or speech. Why does a, and I have a, I'm saying it's a complete humility. I have a high IQ, folks, with an extensive vocabulary. And even when I read it, I'm like, come on, dude. His, his paragraphs are like this long. With words that do not exist in the Bible. I'm not throwing stones at Schaefer, for all you Schaefer lovers out there. Get over yourselves. This is about getting the Word of God correct. This is about folly. And his heritage links back to C.I. Schofield. And then guess, get who's, guess who he gets back to? He gets back to Darby, the so-called father of dispensationalism. I'm just showing you the linkage. So again, this isn't an attack on any one man. This is a defense against false doctrines that have led thousands of people astray. Not hundreds, not tens, thousands of people astray. To make a long story short, suffice to say one thing. Go to uh, 1 Timothy 4.1. I want to show you something. Keep that date in mind. Somewhere in the 1800s. Keep that date in mind. Unless you're going to the restroom, sit down. Is it an emergency? No. 
Don't worry about it. 1 Timothy 4.1. Please, no more distractions, folks. 1 Timothy 4.1. <clears throat> but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, keep an eye on that, keep an eye on that date that I gave you, in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and what? Doctrines of demons. Okay? As I've taught you in the past, what might later times be? We only have our current day perspective, right? So what might later times be to us? So, so I created this little timeline for us up here on the board. So let's just say, you know, man is about 6,000 years old. And I just put a tilde there, you know, about 6,000 years from Jesus Christ to now 2,000 years. Okay? And that's about it. All right. Well, what happens when we introduce dispensationalism? Well, that's less than 200. I was aggressive with the size of that bracket. Okay. That's contemporary dispensationalism. Contemporary dispensationalism comprises about 3% of human history and about 10% of the history from Jesus till now. Okay? My question is this. I've got several of them. Listen up. Is it possible that we might consider the facts on the board as possibly being the, quote, later times that Paul wrote about in Timothy, or to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1? Is it possible that dispensationalism has morphed into something ungodly? Although I do believe and understand parts of it to be true, like we're not going to be sacrificing on an altar. That was a different time. In that sense, sure. Is it possible that many doctrines of demons have used the platform of dispensationalism to spread lies? And then furthermore, looking back across human history, especially since the completed canon of Scripture, is it possible that Satan has used these contemporary, quote, Christian developments to separate people from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you think that's possible, my friends? That carving up the word of God in an unholy, ungodly way could possibly end or result in people being separated from the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's think about it. Granting said space to our basic premise that dispensationalism is very young compared to human history and even to the church itself. If we think about the big picture on the board in context, is it possible that the reason even so many of you hearing my voice right now needed to be delivered unto the gospel of Jesus Christ was because of the simple fact that you were separated from the four gospels in the Bible? Is it possible? Is it possible that because you dispensationalized away the very words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you lost sight of the gospel, if indeed you ever had it. If indeed you ever had it. Is it possible also that this has been the reason for your own confusion over the years regarding the words of Jesus? Is it possible? Is it possible that because 
you had bought a lie that the Gospels and the words of Jesus were not for your dispensation in full or in part, that this could be the major culprit in your confusion. You see, my friends, Satan is a formidable enemy, especially focusing on blinding people from the truth. As I've taught you in the past, if you read your Bibles and you're fundamentally confused, not about particulars and such, you know, you might say, well, I don't know what it means when they use that word. It's like an ancient word or something. I don't know what they meant by that. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being fundamentally confused. You read your Bible and you're like, I have no idea where this is going. Or I'm confused. Then something is terribly wrong. You know how I know that? Not because I have some high IQ and, you know, something's wrong with you. <laughs> Go to 1 Corinthians 14.33. 1 Corinthians 14.33. Go there. You know how I know that's wrong? Because Scripture says it's wrong. <clears throat> if you're confused about the fundamentals of the gospel of Jesus Christ, something is wrong. 1 Corinthians 14.33. And I'm not talking about that confusion that exists in a transitory state when a pastor like myself takes you from one place to another. There's always some confusion in that process. And I've taught you the reason for the confusion is because you had bad doctrine to start with. But that's not to say that the Word of God itself is confusing, because it's not. It was never meant to be. It wasn't even taught that way. Jesus didn't speak in crazy language to confuse people. You know why? Because He was God too. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.33. For God is what? Not a God of confusion. I didn't say that's not Pastor Ed. That's the Word of God. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, up here on the board. So then the question remains, after all those questions, is it possible? Why the confusion? Why the confusion? Why, in other words, are the Gospels of all books difficult? God is not interested in confusing His own children, especially regarding the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is. 1 Corinthians 14.33, we just saw. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.3. God's not interested in confusing His own children, especially regarding the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But Satan is. He would love to separate you from the very words of Jesus Christ. He would love to separate you from the true Gospel of Jesus Christ for a little G Gospel. Maybe one that's not so offensive to your sensitivities. Satan loves that. 2 Corinthians 11.3 Paul said, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So getting back to the title of this morning's message, the difficult passages, the Gospels, why do you think the first four books in the New Testament have been named and called out as the Gospels? Long, long before dispensationalism as we know it ever took root. Why? Why did it take something 
like dispensationalism to start separating people from the four Gospels. Because the Gospels listed long before, I showed you the timeline, long before dispensationalism and then its multiple perversions took root. They exist because they comprise the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's why they're called the Gospels. Because, you know, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the man himself, his words are encapsulated in those Gospels. And God the Holy Spirit inspired them for our edification so that when we read it, we go, yeah, Jesus, amen, I get it. So what better strategy put forth by Satan could there be than to separate we believers in the church from the very words of our Lord. Let me show you the continuity in the Bible regarding the gospel. And this is one instance, okay? Go to Mark 1.1. Mark 1.1. So this is the very opening statement by Mark, which is a gospel, and look at his language. Math, or excuse me, Mark 1 1. <clears throat> I don't even need to go past verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay. Any questions? The gospel of who? Who is it? All right. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is like a real thing, right? And here's Mark writing about this very thing. Up here on the board, just to give it some substance. The gospel of Jesus Christ from Evangelion, Jesus Christos, refers to the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. All right. Sounds simple enough to me. That's Mark 1.1. But we're going to compare it to Romans 1.9 in a second. Again, Mark 1.1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what I want you to understand is what the Spirit's trying to teach you is that there's one gospel. And the writers in the New Testament are not confused. If there, were more, if there was more than one gospel, they would have said it. There's only one gospel. It's heinous to think there was another one. The same gospel that was the gospel back in the garden when they sowed fig leaves and then God delivered them, same gospel now. There was still a Savior then, and guess who it was? It was Jesus Christ. Just like Mark just wrote, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the good news of the Savior that before His incarnation everybody was waiting for that knew better. And then Paul writes about it long after. But it's the same gospel. It's heinous to think otherwise. The gospel of Jesus Christ refers to the good news about Jesus Christ. You know, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. Paul refers to the gospel of His Son, which is the same thing. Go to Romans 1. Romans 1. <clears throat> Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Okay? Many people consider this Paul's great treatise. Many people say this is his primary work. This was Paul's big work. Okay. You have to ask yourself, do you think Paul was confused about the gospel? The gospel of the one who knocked him down on the road to Damascus. The gospel of the one who continued to teach him afterwards. 
You think he was confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one Mark mentioned? I don't think so. I think it would be ridiculous to think so. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Oh, wait, you mean it's the same gospel as like the, the one in the Old Testament? Yeah, imagine that. Here's Paul in his great treatise to the Romans, and he's using Old Testament knowledge to substantiate his letter. Same gospel. It's heinous to think otherwise. It's the same guy, therefore it's the same gospel. <laughs> but, you know, later times, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, isn't that what we just saw in Mark 1.1? You bet. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of His Son. Same gospel, my friends. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was not confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And neither was Jesus. Just saying. The gospel of His Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. So, just to connect the dots here, my friends, knowing that Mark wrote his gospel book somewhere in the 50s A.D. Somewhere in the 50s, Mark wrote his. Okay? And Paul wrote his famous letter to the Romans around 56 A.D. Okay. Just think about that for a moment. Same time frame. Two different writers, two books, but same general time frame. These two incredible books were written around the same time, which, by the way, was well into the formulation or the formation of the early church. Simplicity and purity of Christ. To both Mark, who wrote his gospel in 50s A.D., and Paul, who wrote Romans in 56 A.D. about, and any and all writers in the New Testament there wasn't some artificially, quote, dispensationalized viewpoint about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There has always only been one gospel. Just think if there was, I mean, okay, so say, say for the day you're like, you know what, I'm going to buy this lie that there are 16 different dispensations, and every dispensation has a different gospel. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Good luck trying to sift through all that garbage when Scripture says the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Jeez, I can't even tell who Christ is over here. This, it's, what? You know, Paul knew this point on the board, that there was only one gospel. And you know what? He was never, ever confused about it. Ever. 
Never. God's not a God of confusion. Paul was never confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you read his epistles, you'll see that everything he wrote was to preserve the good name of the one Messiah and the, quote, good news, a.k.a. the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, again, as per our message title even, why the confusion? If the gospel is never confusing to the writers of the New Testament, why in the world would it be confusing to us now? The answer is very easy. It's the doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1, the doctrines of demons. And just so you don't get all weird and think I'm throwing stones at anyone in particular, everyone in here has doctrines of demons somewhere in their soul, etched in. You know why? Because you're confused about something. That's why. Or you've refused, because you're arrogant, to believe something in the Bible. And you've clung to something that was given to you, some doctrine, some precept, some moral code, from the world. Well, that moral code, as sweet as it looks, and as much as it's touted by the world, you know, oh, it's, it was so good and moral. It's a doctrine of demons because it flies in the face of Holy Scripture. God's not a God of confusion. So if this thing causes confusion in your soul, guess who it's from? Demons. It's called the doctrines of demons, my friends. There you go. To interrupt the continuity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to violate the whole Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. Let me give you another example of where Paul connected the dots. Um, go to 1 Corinthians 10, 1. 1 Corinthians 10, 1. So why all the confusion? Well, it's easy. The doctrine of demons. They weren't confused. Paul was never confused. John wasn't confused. I mean, come on. These people weren't confused. Mark wasn't confused about it. John, uh, none of these guys were confused. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10.1, so why the confusion nowadays? Because Satan's really good at sowing confusion. That's what he does. He's the father of lies, right? Isn't that scripture too? Yeah, I think so. 1 Corinthians 10.1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, he's bringing in Old Testament stuff, right? And all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was, you imagine this. You ma can you imagine this? There's only one gospel. Can you imagine that, that they were drinking from the same spiritual rock? That there wasn't some other thing there wasn't some other gospel that they were clinging to they were clinging to jesus christ the messiah they may have not have known his name yet they knew him as the christ which means guess what messiah big deal it's the same guy it's the same gospel <laughs> up here on the board i mean paul's talking so plainly here's the funniest thing he's talking so plainly because when when a writer talks that plainly in Scripture, it means that his audience just understood it. It was obvious. It wasn't a point of contention. It's that obvious, my friends. These guys were never confused about the gospel. The same spiritual drink up here on the board. 
Old Testament saints were not made alive by another gospel from another spirit. It has always been the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks to this idea of a, quote, different gospel elsewhere. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.1. 2 Corinthians 11.1. It's not like Paul didn't have to fight the same battle that I've had to fight, these kinds of things. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. What is going on here? Steve, you all right? Guys, you got to stop getting up. It's killing me. Either sit or don't come. That's, unless you have a medical problem. Does he have a medical problem? All right, he's cool. But everybody else who's thinking about getting up, don't get up. Really don't get up now. Unless you really have a medical problem, which he does. Me. Try to keep, try to teach this stuff. You tell me what's going on. You tell me there aren't demons floating around. If they were visual, they're probably on my back right now. 2 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul speaks to the idea of a different gospel. 2 Corinthians 11.1. 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, little g, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. That was a problem in the Corinthian church, just like it's a problem in America today. American Christianity stinks to the high heavens. It's awful. It's awful. Why? Because it's a little g. People are running around, say this little prayer, do that little thing. You're totally saved forever. Seriously? You know, Paul was afraid of the same thing I'm afraid of even today, up here on the board. Verse 4, Paul was afraid that the doctrines of demons would successfully split. Imagine this, what was he afraid of? Here's the whole gospel, in Paul's eyes, it was never different. More revelation about the same thing, big deal, but always faith alone, Christ alone, always Christ the centerpiece, always grace. He was afraid that the doctrines of demons would successfully split. Look, you start splitting up the gospel and things get really confusing really quickly. You start using a platform like dispensationalism in the later times to start saying, oh, there's more than one gospel even. Now you have a real problem. Now you've got an infrastructure that promotes something totally unholy, totally not taught in the Scripture, anywhere in Scripture. Paul was afraid that the doctrines of demons would successfully split the simplicity, purity, and unity of the one true gospel. To Paul, there was always just a single gospel. I mean, remember also, just for more on this, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. It wasn't like he was ignorant of the Old Testament. 
He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So says Scripture, Acts 23.6. So it's not like he was confused about the gospel due to some ignorance of the Old Testament Bible. It wasn't like he was confused. He was more well-versed than pretty much everyone except Jesus. <laughs> and he was never confused. So let's close with some practical thoughts on all of this. Up here on the board, selective hearing. Why would we ever choose to listen to some of Jesus' words but not all? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Context is indeed key. However, man has manufactured unholy contexts in order to, quote, write off the words of our very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as desired. Doctrines of demons. Think about that. The doctrines of demons. Man has created unholy contexts even, or just taken things completely out of context, giving it no context whatsoever, and then ultimately you end up with these hack doctrines like hyper-dispensationalism and all its little children. And let me tell you, there's a bunch of them. That guys like Martin Luther, you know, that guy, would have been like, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? The writers of the New Testament would be like, what now? What now? Oh, I see. It's just another form of Gnosticism. Same thing. Just trying to elevate yourselves through knowledge. No wonder why people that follow those systems of thinking have no love. Our stiffs, cold-hearted, so-called Christians, many of them, I fear, aren't even saved. And they will fight you. Oh, will they fight you tooth and nail on this stuff. And you know what I say to them? Been there, done that. But you, my friend, haven't been where I'm at now. Man has manufactured unholiness and split up the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Up here on the board. Listen to the Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9, and this same Spirit inspired the word of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, 2 Timothy 3, 16. We know that the whole Bible reflects the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. Go to Romans 8, 9. Again, listen to the Spirit, my friends. The Spirit is God, right? And God's not a God of confusion. So if you're confused about the very gospel of Jesus Christ, it might be a different Spirit peddling, guess what? Another Jesus! And another gospel. Can you imagine that? That scripture actually lines up on that subject. Can you just imagine that? People don't want to hear that, though. That's the point. They don't want to hear it. Oh, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it does. It applies directly to you. That's why it's written. If you're confused about the gospel, something's wrong. So listen to the Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ, and this same Spirit inspired the Word of God, we know that the whole Bible reflects the Word of Christ. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, there it is, the very Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Talking about an unbeliever. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. That reminds me of Romans 7. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Go to, quickly, go to 1 Corinthians 2.12. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Listen to the Spirit, my friends. God's not a God of confusion. That means you, if you're confused, you're probably not listening to the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So, just in closing, folks, um, there's likely more to come on this topic. The, quote, difficult passages, the Gospels. What the Spirit wants you to know is simple, and I'm just going to reiterate These are borrowed from previously in the lesson. The word of Christ. Can you imagine embarking on a quest for faith? A faith that comes from hearing the word of Christ without first consulting the actual words of Christ himself. Why the confusion? If the gospel was never confusing to the writers of the New Testament, why in the world would it be confusing to us now? The answer is simple. The doctrines of demons. To interrupt the continuity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to violate the whole Bible. That's why some of you, I know because you've told me, were confused for years. Really, like confused. It wasn't simple at all. You were like, man, I'm, I keep, I'm, I'm trying, but I'm getting confused. I mean, there's all these divisions, and, yeah, and they weren't even there. Satan's really smart. Selective hearing. Why would we ever choose to listen to some of Jesus' words, but not all? Context is indeed key, so I'm not throwing that out. I'm the same guy who teaches context is key, context is key, context is key. But, however, man has manufactured unholy context, if any sometimes, in order to, quote, write off the words of our very Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as desired. I'm just going to say this in closing. (laughs) It's really hard to teach, honestly. But if you've been around this church long enough, all I can tell you is that it was like a giant onion and we just kept peeling things off. And he's peeling things off. And at the time, some of you kicking and saying, I don't get it and I don't like it. Stick with it. Just in your humility, stick with it. It'll make sense eventually. Peeling it off. Then we get to the gospel. And then it's like, and then you realize, looking back at all that was undone in your soul, that the reason those things even existed in your soul was a perversion of the gospel itself. It was because you had the gospel somehow twisted, somehow it was broken, 
Maybe it was separated. Maybe it was drastically separated. Maybe he was one of the people that thought there was more than one gospel. Maybe, I don't know. But once you get to that beautiful, the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything else starts making sense. And you look and say, if you're honest, you say, oh, now I know why I was thinking that. And now I know why pastor was so like a wild animal sometimes up there spitting and yelling. Because remember, I see it before you get there. He shows me. He says, just for some of them, you're going to have to hold on. I'm going to work on their faith. They're going to stick it out. And then once they get there, then they start growing back out. They're going to see as they retrace their steps, the ones we took on the way in, they're going to see the folly in their ways. They're going to start to realize the things that you taught them, what I had you teach them years ago, are going to make a whole lot of more sense now that they have the baseline proper. That's the best I can teach it. It's really hard because Satan's really smart, folks. Really smart. Really, really smart. So I just pray that, you know, you stick with it. You read your own Bibles with the faith of a child. Um, you understand that there is only one gospel, that the gospel shouldn't be... Come on! The gospel shouldn't be difficult at all. Right? Those are the words of Jesus Christ. They shouldn't be difficult at all. They shouldn't be unattainable. They shouldn't be over there. They shouldn't be something you don't visit daily even. My goodness. Amen? All right, folks, time for communion service.
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of our pers the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, let's cue up the video, guys.
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for making things so very clear in our souls, and for bringing us all together in the unity of the faith. We thank you, Father, for the good things you've shared with us over the years, particularly as we remember seven years and seven months of our pressing on by faith. We pray that our humility increases as we grow in your grace and knowledge, and that as we step out on faith, in a variety of ways, through a variety of very personal ministries, that we never forget that your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his own words, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thank you, Dad, for comforting us, just as you've always promised, for your loving kindness and compassions are new every morning. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.